0: I often try to catch a worship team member that has just done an outstanding job and encourage them. And today I gave up because that entire team did such a great job in leading this worship today. Um, I hope that, hope that you will encourage them as you catch them coming and going. We're, we're privileged to be led by them before our, our wonderful Savior in such a way. I want to start a new series today called Seeking God Wholeheartedly, lessons from the life of David in First and Second Samuel, and it's going to be a long series, it'll run all the way into the fall, as we work our way through um, the latter part of First and Second Samuel, we'll, we'll focus on David, and he shows up about chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, which is where we want to begin our focus. As a result of that, I have to do two things that you ought not have to do. One is I'm going to drop you into the middle of a book of the Old Testament and expect you to make sense out of it. And because I'm dropping you into the middle of the book of the Old Testament and expect you to make sense out of it, today I have to teach 16 chapters of the Bible in one message. So I hope you didn't have any plans for the rest of the afternoon because we've got some ground to cover. I honestly am going to try to take you through 16 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel today in kind of an overview fashion by telling uh, three men's stories who are the predominant characters, the main characters in the book of 1 Samuel. That is going to require me to teach a lot of content, which means that you really need to sharpen your elbows and poke your partner if they get a little drowsy this morning. Because we're going to have to go through a lot of stuff. It's going to require you to grasp a lot of concepts and and details that you may not be familiar with. But these three lives have so much to say to us. And I'd like to begin by praying that God would make us receptive as we walk through this book together. Okay? Let's pray. God, we we will be exposed to much in the next few moments. But I pray that that would um, not detract us from that one thing that you might be saying to each one of us about our lives as we have this glorious privilege of realigning our lives from our own foolish ways to your beautiful plan for our lives. And I pray that the proclamation and reading of your word now would serve that great purpose in every life in this room, every life that hears this message proclaimed, that you might be at work, and that we might be sensitive to what it is you're saying to us. So, Spirit, come and guide us now, we pray. Amen. If I can back you up even farther than the book of 1 Samuel, back to the book of Exodus, God's people were enslaved in Egypt and then, of course, were mightily delivered. You've seen the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt and you've read the stories in the Bible. You're familiar with the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and the miraculous deliverance that God did from his people with the intent of taking them into the Promised Land. Well, a few books later in the Bible, in the book of Joshua, they get to the Promised Land and they conquer it. Militarily, They enter the promised land, they run out the Canaanites, and they possess that land, the land of Canaan. The book of Judges, which immediately precedes our, our context, our book, where we want to talk historically. There's a series of leaders that are raised up to deliver God's people. They're called Judges, people like Gideon and Samson, who are raised up. To deliver God's people when they fall away from His ways and fall into depravity and sin and the judgment that comes with it. God would bring a judge who would serve as a deliverer amongst His people. Well, at the point of 1 Samuel opening, it's the time of the judges and it's a low point in that cycle of sin and deliverance, sin and deliverance. And the people are awaiting a judge who will deliver them from the pattern that they are embroiled in. Um, That is when Samuel for whom the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are named, comes onto the scene. And he is born as a result of his mother's passionate prayer for him. In um, chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, you can follow along in your Bibles if you'd like. We'll just kind of be racing through those first 16 chapters and feel free to follow along if you'd like in your Bibles. Verse 9, When they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah, Samuel's mother, stood up And Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow. This is what she said. O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. She's praying to God for a child, for a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. He will be dedicated to the Lord's service. Her prayer is answered, and a son named Samuel is born to her. She says, I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he'll be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And you'll recognize some of the language there is language we like to use in the dedication of our children. As a way for parents to express that their child is a gift from the Lord, that they are giving back over to him for his name's sake and for his glory. And Hannah does that here very literally because Samuel becomes a priest. Now, in Samuel's time, it says the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli, the priest. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare and there were not many visions. Principally, because the people were corrupt. God's priests were corrupt in those days, as we'll see. And so not much was heard from God in those days, but Samuel heard from the Lord. One night, as he was preparing to go to bed, as a a young boy still, evidently, um, he heard God's voice calling him, Samuel, Samuel, but he couldn't recognize who it was. He thought it was Eli the priest, And so on three different occasions he hears the voice, he runs to Eli's room and he says, Here I am, you called me? And finally Eli figures out that it's God calling his young apprentice. And so he tells Samuel to say these words if God should call again. And in verse 10, the Lord did come again and he stood there calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel says something that will mark the rest of his life in ministry. He says, Speak, for your servant is listening. And if there is one trait about Samuel's life that's evident throughout his life and ministry, he listened to what God had to say and he obeyed it. He was marked by the word of God all of his life and ministry. He radically obeys it. One example of that is later in our story, we'll get there this morning, Lord willing, um, Saul, the first king of Israel, who's yet to come, was given an assignment by God to completely wipe out the Amalekite people as a judgment. And instead, he compromises that and he keeps what might be considered a trophy prisoner. Their king is allowed to live and Saul keeps his king as a prisoner. God instructed him specifically to completely destroy this people. Well, Samuel finds out about this in... uh, chapter 15, and he says, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him confidently, thinking, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. It's an unfortunate scripture on Mother's Day, but it exhibits... um, The radical obedience of Samuel to God's word. This marked this guy's life at every turn. And he expects the same of God's people. He calls God's people to the same level of obedience. To repentance from their disobedience and obedience to God. In chapter 7, Samuel says to the whole house of Israel, they gathered around him. And he says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods. And the Asteriths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines, their archenemy. So the Israelites put away their bales and their Asterith, the false gods, and served the Lord only. Samuel was a man who called the people to obedience to God's word. He's a great man of integrity, too. Towards the end of his life, he's standing before the people at another one of these great assemblies and he's able to say this. He says, Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and His anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I'll make it right. And the people responded, You have not cheated or oppressed us. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand because he was a man of extraordinary integrity all of his life in ministry, again because he was a man devoted to the Word of God. Samuel, probably the other predominant trait about Samuel, as you read the early parts of the book of 1 Samuel, is he was a man of extraordinary prayer. Um, In chapter 7, Samuel says, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede for the Lord for you. So he's going to pray for God's people, intercede for them. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew, near, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And on that day they fasted and they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was the leader of Israel at Mizpah. Now the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, and the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. So Samuel calls this great gathering to pray and intercede for the people. Their enemies hear about it, and they're going to attack them while they're at worship. Be like us being attacked this morning while we're all here worship. The Israelites heard of it. They were afraid because of the Philistines. And they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. The Lord heard his prayer. This is Samuel's legacy. He's alluded to in the Psalms, um, in Psalm To this, Psalm 99 says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord, and he answered them. Samuel's legacy was a man who prayed to God, and God would hear him. Jeremiah says something similar. The Lord says to Jeremiah, Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. And it's kind of a backhanded compliment. Samuel is listed as one of the two great intercessors of the Old Testament, along with Moses. And even the New Testament, well, I forget that. But at any rate, there's a whole, whole series of uh, situations where his legacy is underscored as a man of prayer. So Samuel dominates the early landscape of the book of 1 Samuel as a man of prayer and of the word who seeks after God and radically obeys Him, and he calls the people to do the same thing, to seek God with all their heart. In fact, that's what Samuel is doing for us this morning. Even as we hear this short, brief account of his life, he is calling us to wholehearted pursuit of God. Perhaps, perhaps God is speaking to you through these words of this prophet this morning about your followership. I'd like to just read his words again and let you listen to them as God speaks to you personally. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of His great name, the Lord will not reject His people, because the Lord was pleased to make you His own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure... To fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things He has done for you, yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. So, through these pages of the early part of the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel's voice still calls us to repent and to follow God with all our heart, to stop playing and dabbling around at religion and follow God wholeheartedly. He says, repent. And and I think it's helpful for us to realize that repentance is not some Old Testament kind of thing. It's for us. In the New Testament, Paul would write, yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. God intended for them to be sorry for their sin. And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And so repentance is this beautiful thing whereby God leads us to a life that leaves no regret. And Samuel was a man of the word and prayer and he calls us to obedience to God in a radical way. Let me challenge you something out of the life of Samuel. This week I'd like to challenge you to read personally the first 16 chapters of the book of Samuel that I'm skimming you across as we get ready for chapter 17 next week. To read the entire 16 chapters. I know some of you are thinking, 16 chapters, my lands, what? Friends, it's 15 pages in your Bible. Okay? It sounds like a lot, it's not. You read two pages a day, and you're practically there. Okay? So you can and should do this. Read the first 16 chapters just as a response to Samuel's life, as desiring to be men and women who are marked by the Word of God. So I'd say read it and pray the prayer of Samuel as you read it. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And read those 16 chapters and see what God has to say to you. So Samuel is our first figure in the book of 1 Samuel. There's a second figure that comes on the scene who's prominent about midway through the book in chapter 9. His name, as I've already alluded to, is Saul. And as Samuel was the last great judge in Israel, and his legacy was full obedience to the word of God, Saul would become her first king, and his legacy would be partial obedience. Partial obedience. Partial obedience. See, up until Saul, Israel had no human king. They had a divine king. And God had given judges to be their deliverers and and leaders at points. But they had no earthly king. Their king was in heaven. But now, as Samuel, the last of the great judges, is growing old and nearing death, the people are troubled. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons... To be judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in Samuel's ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So, as you can imagine, the people of Israel are concerned about who's going to shepherd them. Samuel's about to die, his sons are worthless scoundrels. What's going to go on here? And so the leaders get together and they have a plan. And the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. So, this request for an earthly king like the other nations was essentially a rejection of their divine king. And God, in his infinite wisdom, granted their foolish request and gave them a king. Their first human king, like all the other nations had. And his name was Saul, King Saul. Saul is anointed privately by Samuel in a ceremony. And then publicly, he's going to be coronated and announced to the nation in chapter 10. So Samuel summons the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and says to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. And you have said, No, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. And when Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin clan by clan, and Matri's clan was chosen. And finally, they're whittling down the selection for king now. And they're saying, finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they just picked their king, announced him publicly, they can't find the guy. And so Samuel is a little bothered by this. They inquire further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? Anybody seen Saul? Lord, have you seen Saul? And the Lord says, yes, he has hidden himself amongst the baggage. Now, two things that I'll underscore for you at this point in time. One, important point, you cannot hide from God. Okay? Just a little aside as you think about that. Two, it's not a good thing when your anointed king... Who's been anointed by Samuel himself, whose word never falls to the ground, it says. His word always comes true. When he's been anointed by Samuel on a private ceremony, and then Saul had three miraculous confirming signs of his anointing prior to this point in time. When those things have all happened to him, and it's time for him to be announced, and he's hiding in the baggage. This does not bode well for this whole king thing that the leaders of Israel have come up with. So as you might expect, it's only a couple of chapters into Saul's reign where there's a downward turn. In chapter 13, the Philistines, again their arch enemies, assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Bethaven. And when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks, and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. And he waited seven days, the time that had set by Samuel. Because Samuel had told Saul, wait seven days, I will come and sacrifice an offering For the Lord, for your military conquest in this situation. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So Saul says, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering that Samuel was to have offered as the priest. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrives, and Saul went out to greet him. Now at this point in time, it seems like a pretty noble thing to do. He's concerned that God would go with him in battle, so he's seeking God's approval. And that seems like a noble thing to do. But Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? Saul said, well, I, when I saw that the men were scattering and he did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering, which sounds like a great plan. But we read what Samuel says next. He says, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. See, the problem is that Saul would not trust God's word brought to him through Samuel and he would not fully obey it. See, a human king of Israel, especially in matters of military conquest for the nation, was only to act according to the directives he got from the divine king, God himself. There was no room for do-it-yourselfers or improvisers. Saul was expected to obey God fully, and he did not. And so in verse 14, the very next verse... Samuel says, Now your kingdom, Saul, will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. There's that phrase again. And appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul's slide continues in the next chapter with rash decisions that cause him ultimately to vow to kill his own son, Jonathan. Jonathan's life is spared only when Saul's own soldiers defy him and step in and spare Jonathan's life. And in chapter 15, Saul disobeys God once again. Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. So there is a a directive from God that's given to Saul as the military leader of the people to go and totally destroy the Amalekites for the way they had opposed God's people when they were being delivered from Egypt. It's God's judgment being brought upon them. And at this point, um, the decree to destroy them is absolute. Women, children, livestock, everything. And this raises a lot of difficult questions about a thing in the Bible in the Old Testament sometimes referred to as a holy war. And uh, while obviously I I can't explain much about that fully, let me just say two things about this, this kind of situation. One, these kind of situations are about discovering the truth about God, not judging Him. We're not trying to fashion God in the way that we'd like Him to be, we're trying to discover who He has shown Himself to us to be. And He's shown us to be a God who, in this case, who is radically holy. There's a level of holiness in God that we cannot comprehend that it requires this level of judgment against people who oppose Him. Secondly, His wrath is terrible, and you do not want to face the wrath of God if there's anything you can do in life, escape the wrath of God because it is horrible and it's what we see coming against the Amalekite people here. Now, in two weeks, Chip McDaniel will be teaching here and his um, topic has absolutely nothing to do with holy war, but I already said that he had to explain it to you guys, so Chip will take care of all your questions about holy war in two weeks. Um. so the story continues in the next few verses Saul attacks the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt he took Agag king of the Amalekites alive an act of disobedience and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword but Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle the fat calves and lambs everything that was good so this is disobedience to God's specific instruction These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Partial obedience in God's eyes is disobedience. And so Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul's gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Which is not true. Samuel then said, you have to love the way Samuel says this. He says, well, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul answers, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we, we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. He said, Enough of this justification. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. So Samuel says, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Saul says, But I did obey the Lord. And now he's kind of twisted the Lord's commands to fit his obedience or his disobedience. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, Saul, he has rejected you as king. Saul's obedience is partial, he obeys what he wants to obey, it's selective. And then his repentance is marred by excuses and selfish concerns. Saul says to Samuel in response, I've sinned, a great confession. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people and so I gave in to them. And now the rationalizations start. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Saul's concern is not about what he's done to dishonor God. It's about me. It's about his own reputation. And so as we consider Saul's rejection and demise, his life poses us a couple of questions. First of all, how is your repentance? I wonder, when was the last time you told somebody, I was wrong, I am sorry. Without qualification. Without a but you attached. I wonder when was the last time you said that to your spouse? When was the last time you said that to your children? You know, I find it extraordinarily hard to approach my children and say, you know what, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Without attaching a but you shouldn't have done that. See, but that's like Saul. It's an inability to stay focused on my own responsibility for my sin. And so at the heart of our theme this year of seeking God wholeheartedly is the idea of learning to repent well and often. Without excuses. No, but what about you's or no, but what about them's? No, but what about's? Just what about my great sin, God, and what about your great name, God. So how's how's your repentance, really? And he pushes another question at us from his story in first Samuel, and that is, so how's your obedience? Is it partial or selective? Are there areas of your life where you refuse to obey God? Well, back to our story. As you can imagine. With Saul's demise, Samuel near death, and his son's worthless scoundrels, the people of Israel are greatly concerned once again about who's going to shepherd them because Saul has now been definitively rejected by God. Um, When Samuel turned to leave this last discussion in chapter 15, Saul reached out, caught the hem of his robe, and tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And so Saul has been rejected. Who will shepherd God's people now? And the answer comes in verse sixteen or chapter 16, the very first verse. That says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So one of Jesse of Bethlehem's sons will be God's anointed king. And that should set off some familiar bells in your mind. Where you have read or heard of another son, descendant of Jesse, who also will be from Bethlehem, who also will be God's anointed king. His name is Jesus. And now, through David, we have established the line of the Messiah, where Matthew actually says Jesus is the son of David, he is chosen. And the way he's chosen catches everybody that's involved, even Samuel, by surprise. In chapter 16, verse 6, Samuel is arriving at Jesse's house in Bethlehem to anoint his son king. And he sees Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before, before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Saul was a head taller than everyone else in the kingdom." He said, don't worry about his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you've got? He says, they're still the youngest, but he's tending the sheep. He wasn't even invited to the ceremony. He was such an unlikely candidate. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so he sent and had him brought in, and he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came upon David with power. God has chosen the youngest. He has chosen the least likely candidate, the one nobody would have expected. He chose David. I don't know if any of you watched the NFL draft um, this, this year. It's a TV show that lasts about eight hours where you watch them pick names. That's, that's all they do. And it's endless. And everybody knows pretty much who the first pick's going to be, or at least they think they do, um, But the last pick was a guy named Jonathan Holland out of Louisiana, and he was picked, I believe, 255th. The selection of David to be the king of Israel would be like picking Jonathan Holland first in the draft. Nobody even thought his name would show up. He wasn't even invited to the ceremony. And yet, he is the one that God has chosen because he doesn't pick by our criteria. It's not about appearance, but it's about the heart. And this is the way God chooses people that he loves to use. In Psalm 147, his pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor His delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Same idea in Proverbs 31, charms deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So from David's life, there's another question that comes to us. Um, How about you? Would God pick you based on your heart? Not necessarily be the anointed king of Israel, but to be useful in God's hands? Is your heart after God in such a way that he will pick you to be useful for his great purposes? David's life was marked by a heart that seeks after God, and that's why God chose him. That was the prediction of his reign in chapter 13. It says, Saul, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. In 1 Kings 14, David becomes the standard whereby all future kings are measured. It says, I tore the king away from the house of David and gave it to you, speaking of another king, but you have not been like my servant David who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. Again, for David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's command all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite, which we'll read about later. Even the New Testament This is David's legacy. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So how's your heart towards God? Will you do everything he wants you to do? Well, this morning, we have kind of just skip through the first 16 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel through three men's stories. Samuel, who was a man renowned for his, his integrity and his prayer and the word of God, hearing it and radical obedience to it. Maybe this morning God is prompting you to hear Samuel's call to repent of your lukewarm followership of your God and to follow him with all your heart. Maybe he's convicting you to become a man or a woman of the word and to dig into the Bible with the prayer of Samuel on your lips. Speak, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Then there's Saul, who lived a life of compromise, of partial obedience. Had little pockets of disobedience in his life. And maybe God is pointing to you about a pocket you have that's just like Saul's. That's your king that you're keeping alive. Lastly, there's David, chosen to be the anointed king of Israel because he was after God with all his heart. He was a man after God's own heart, it says. And so as God is speaking to you this morning, I want to encourage you to to respond during our time of response as the worship team comes. May we respond this morning like Samuel and David in response to God's holy word. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord God, come. Show us how to follow you like Samuel and like David. Deliver us from a legacy like Saul. That we might be men and women who are after you with all our heart, who seek after your own heart. Now, Lord, hear our prayers and confessions. Hear our commitments as we make them to you. For your great name's sake, Lord, hear our prayers and our worship now as we commit our lives to you. We pray in Christ's name. Let's stand and worship Christ.